Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan. Joining me as always is Gareth. Hello. And today we're going back to the mid-90s and we're going to be looking at The Thin Blue Line, mm. written by Ben Elton, of course, and starring Rowan Atkinson. Inspector Blackadder. <laughs> yes. Not quite. It was very, quite no, a different character. Not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, first things first, I guess, uh, what we usually address is, do you remember this from the time, Gareth? I do, I do. And my little joke there about Inspector Blackadder is uh, tinged with disappointment. So in 1995, I would have been 20. uh, But my teenage years were, uh, you know, dominated in terms of sitcoms by Blackadder. I I was a huge fan of Blackadder. I can remember, for example, Blackadder Goes Forth coming out, the World War I series. Mm-hmm. And just the anticipation of it, you know, it had been trailed and we knew it was coming and there was real excitement in the schoolyard about it. You know, I would struggle to think of something that me and my mates enjoyed more in terms of sitcom. And then, you know, that ended. And a few years later, along came the Thin Blue Line. And I genuinely was expecting Inspector Blackadder. I thought, because Ben Elton's writing it, Rowan Atkinson's in it. I thought it's, <laughs> yeah. it's the same pedigree. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Which I suppose is what we're about to discuss. <laughs> A very negative attitude. You no, have. I, let, let, well, look, we're going to get into this, obviously, but I, I think that's probably uh, as negative as I'm going to get. Um, mm-hmm. You asked me what my memory of it was, and my memory was being very disappointed. But having watched it again this last couple of weeks, uh, watched a few episodes, you know, I, I don't love it, but I, I think that having had that those high expectations removed, I enjoyed it probably more than I did in 1995. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think just as an overall point, this feels like, and and this is definitely something that Ben Elton is interested in, a kind of more old school sitcom. It's very much, yeah. uh, you know, three walls in front of a studio audience. Very, There's some very classic elements here, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. And this is something of a last, a bastion for that, I think. It's, you know, things changed in the late 90s, early 2000s, where that was just not very cool anymore. And obviously we still have, lots of those kinds of sitcoms yeah but i think they always seem a little bit out of date these days they feel old-fashioned this this definitely feels old-fashioned i wonder if it felt old-fashioned in 1995 well i think there is a deliberate sense of old-fashionedness about it uh, and, mm-hmm. and that is uh, i think that is deliberate because of ben elton's particular penchant for that style but mm. also the the way that Rowan Atkinson's character behaves the 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 point of it seems to be this slightly old fashioned stiff upper lipped kind of person yes. trying to get along in this modern twentieth century world. Yeah, it's 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 a sort of nineteen fifties police officer. Yes, having to come to terms with the fact that it's the nineteen nineties and there are raves and drugs and all yes, sorts of things. Exactly. So I think it's deliberate to to some extent, and that's okay if we deal with it on that level. But yes, you. This is a Rowan Atkinson vehicle, really. Yeah. Uh, let's sort of face it. He's certainly the biggest star in the cast, uh, and and obviously Ben Elton had worked with him before. This is obviously written for him. It does feel a little bit like this might be the closest character to Rowan Atkinson that we've had <laughs> from him yeah. in terms of a 1950s person. Well, it's interesting. Let, let, why don't we why don't we dig right into Rowan Atkinson and we'll start off the podcast yeah. by by really getting into the nitty-gritty here. In his year, the year he sort of graduated and and found public fame, he was the hottest thing in British comedy. Mm. I, I guess it was that nineteen seventy nine. That's sort of what I've got what I've yeah. got in my head. He was the coming man. Everybody sort of wanted a piece of him, and he was going to be the next big thing. And they were trying to find a vehicle for him. And he, I, I, he ended up on not the nine o'clock news, didn't he? Yeah, that's what that was the first big TV show that he was on. He was going to be the next big thing, and then he was the next big thing yeah, for 20 yeah, indeed, years. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, Rowan Atkinson, when you see him interviewed or in his personal life or whatever, he does seem like a very kind of boring little <laughs> middle-aged man now, you yeah. know? And uh, he, whenever you see him interviewed, he's shy, he's, he's quite quiet, he's obviously quite awkward. Yeah. He seems the most unlikely performer. Uh, especially a comedy performer, I suppose, where you have to be quite big. And how yeah. that came about, who knows exactly. He just has a natural comedy to him. And he obviously approached comedy in a very analytical way. He doesn't yes. seem to yes. laugh or enjoy anything. 
yeah, every time I've ever seen him interviewed, it's almost like he's been just desperate to get out of the limelight. Yeah. When did you first start making people laugh? Because you came from, from a, a very unlikely background, actually, for a, for a, a comic entertainer. Yeah, there's no, there's no real show business heritage in my family at all. It's strange, except that my grandfather used to own cinemas and theatres in the northeast of England. But, uh, so there wasn't any particular reason why I should have turned out <laughs> the way I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a character comedian. He's not a stand-up. Like, he, he's not no. going to be himself. He loves to lose himself in a character. And I think that's mm. a way of a shy and awkward person hiding. Like, yes. oh, well, if I'm not myself, they can't judge me. And, you know, you said he was the, he was the coming man and, he, and he, he was the next big thing. And he, he, he's, he's globally famous. Like, his face is recognisable. And perhaps mm. that's more to do with Mr. Bean than with Blackadder. And, yeah. you know, we can talk a little bit about how his, you know, his, his, his comedy relies on a lot of physicality. But there are probably people in Botswana who know who Rowan Atkinson is. I, I don't think you could say the same about Leonard Rossiter, for example. Definitely, yeah. And that is probably Bean, yes. Obviously something that translates well. Uh, across languages but 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 i think that's in that's instructive about his style of comedy and we've mm. talked on our podcast before about my you know i'm not a, a massive fan of physical comedy it's not really what floats my boat and the, the whole mr bean stuff does nothing for me i it leaves me cold but i love black adder and i think there was some there was a lot of physicality in that performance but really, it's the writing, it's, it's, it's Ben Elton's words that, that I loved about Blackadder, I think, in hindsight. Yeah, I've, I've did dig up some early Rowan Atkinson stuff, like 1979, 1980 mm. stuff, a lot of which he wrote and was kind of derived from his characters. And yeah, it's not particularly hilarious, um, but it still works. There's a famous, uh, there's a famous Rowan Atkinson sketch from way back when about, he's a headmaster and he's reading out the names and the register. Yeah. And that's, that's all he's doing is reading a list of names. Mm. And, you know, it's the, the vocalization and the, you know, the, the, what he brings to that list of names. Yeah. I don't know. Can you describe that as physicality, vocalization? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But, but it's not the writing. It's not the, you know, if you read it on the page, it wouldn't be funny. It's what he is, how he delivers it. Mattock. <laughs> Nancy Boy Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Orifice. Yeah, that's his skill, I suppose. That's uh, certainly he, he's the sort of person. Yeah, he's like he could read the phone book and it'd be funny, and that almost literally yeah. in that case. Yeah. So yeah, Rowan Atkinson, bit of a you know. Classic upper middle class posh boy, <laughs> like not quite posh, but you know, he uh, he's from Durham originally, and uh, mm -hmm. he went to the same school as Tony Blair, for example, a couple of years nice. older, a uh, couple of years younger actually. But you know, he's very good student, uh, you know, very academic, and he went to he ended up going to Newcastle University to study electrical and electronic engineering. Which, oh. correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you do that as well? I, I did. I got my, uh, like Tony Soprano, I got my semester and a half at university. <laughs> and, uh, but yes, electronic engineering was my, the degree I started. <laughs> <laughs> well, un unlike you, a quitter, uh, Rowan Atkinson saw it through to the end and then went to Oxford to do his master's. And that is when he got involved with the Oxford group. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing comedy reviews and stuff, and also was involved with the Oxford University Dramatic Society, where he met Richard Curtis and Howard mm. Goodall. So obviously very formative yeah. years. Right and so, yeah, by the time he came out in 78, 79, like you're saying, he was hot stuff. You know, he's 23, 24. But even then, he looks 40. He acts like a middle-aged man. You yes. know, he's got this, yes. he's always had this slightly older sense about him. Which they use in Thin Blue Line. Obviously, that's that's part mm -hmm. of the the comedy of that character. Mm -hmm. Apparently, he was offered uh, like the Rowan Atkinson show, basically, and he demurred from that. He didn't w quite want that pressure, quite want that spotlight. Mm. I think, and so not the nine o'clock news became a great home for him because he was just one yeah. of a handful of people. Didn't didn't have to put too much pressure on him. But then there was a couple of false starts with not nine o'clock news. They originally did a pilot with a different cast, but with Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, and um, it never even got shown in the end. Rejigged it a little bit, and and it came out. And again, a bit of a false start. That first series didn't quite land. They dumped Chris Langham. 
Yeah, Griff Reese Jones was brought in for the second series, which is, um, well, I guess you could call it your classic lineup. Yes. So, yeah, Mel Smith and Pamela Stevenson as well. I had to do a lot of work with him on a sort of one to one basis. Yes. If I might just butt in at this point, Tim, I think I should point out that I have done a considerable amount of work on this project myself, and if I may say so, your teaching methods do leave a bit to be desired. It's a little bit ungrateful, isn't it? And your, your diction, for instance, is I'm not... Sorry, really I'm sorry, can I put this into some sort of perspective? When I caught Gerald in 68, <clears throat> he was completely wild. Wild? I was absolutely livid. I've never <laughs> such a love It became this huge hit uh, mm. of, of the early 80s, and I've heard it said, you know, this was the this was the dawning of alternative comedy on television, you know, which yeah. is obviously a bit of a grey line, but yeah, I understand that. It's just before the young ones, for example. Yeah. It's just sort of predates that. And you can tell these guys, and certainly Rowan Atkinson, I've heard him talk about his love for the the Python team, but but specifically John Cleese. Mm-hmm. That that classic schoolmaster sketch that you've just mentioned, the the classic mm. video of that, if you look it up, that's from uh, the Secret Policeman's Ball, which was yes. John Cleese's yeah. thing, basically, you know, for Amnesty. John Cleese's Amnesty Project, yeah. And uh, when they set out to do the Blackadder, which was 1983, so just jumping mm-hmm. ahead a few years, so not the nine o'clock news uh, had finished. They'd kind of done a couple of a, a few years. They've gone, okay, we've done that. Let's leave that on a high. What is Rowan Atkinson going to do next? He did The Blackadder, which he wrote alongside Richard Curtis. Yes. They chose to do something completely different that could not be compared to Faulty Towers, which was the, like the most recent huge sitcom hit. It was very, it was a lot more filmic, wasn't it? It was very... It was totally filmic. It was not ba- yeah. It was not stage-based at all. And it's not The Blackadder that we know, uh, you know, is going uh, in hindsight. But the important thing about that is that Ben Elton was brought in to rejuvenate that mm. show. Rowan Atkinson dropped out of the writing cast, concentrated on performing and richard curtis and ben Elton redeveloped that character sure, and, the, and we are, we're gonna you know for the so our listeners know the plan here is that we're going to talk about ben Elton in the second half in a lot more detail but the received yeah. wisdom about blackadder is that the first series was a bit of a flop mm. seen as a bit of a failure at the time and in hindsight and ben Elton essentially was brought in to rejuvenate it and was successful yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, everyone sort of accepts that. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, you can't be perfect every time. So the Black Blackadder was the 80s. Then after that, Mr. Bean started in 1990. Um, in fact, I think the first episode went out on New Year's Day in 1990. So, yeah, um, Bean had already been uh, podded before the Thin Blue Line. <laughs> yes. In fact, Bean was basically... The, the the proper series of Mr. Bean that was on telly was finished in 95, I think. Uh, right. What they did after that was some specials. They did the films, the two films. And the first Bean film was directed by Mel Smith, by the way. Uh, yes, just a little didn't that. But that's really interesting. When we were talking about my memories of it, I hadn't realised that. I thought Bean came after this. And so my, <laughs> my disappointment in Rowan Atkinson <laughs> would have come <laughs> before The Thin Blue Line. So perhaps my expectations <laughs> were not as high as... As I may have stated earlier, I don't know. That's interesting. That's interesting. But I, that, Bean never did it for me. Mm. So, the Thin Blue Line, nineteen ninety-five. Mm-hmm. Not only was this Rowan Atkinson's next sitcom after Blackadder, not counting Bean as a sitcom as such, but it's the only sitcom he's done other than Blackadder. Mm. Yeah. Which I was somewhat shocked by when I looked into it. Like obviously, off the top of my head, I couldn't think of anything. But I thought, oh, I'll look it up. There's bound to be something else. And no, there isn't. Atkinson's got a funny old career in that sense. Yes, he had this period of success in the 80s and all that, and he, he transferred that into the Bean international success. And then not long after this, he ended up doing Johnny English. Uh, but mm. but after this, he went to America. He did some little jobbing roles. He he never quite had a breakthrough uh, until he made his well, own. Well, I think of, I think of the... Uh, he, was, he was the vicar in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. And my... My th- if you ask me to describe Rowan Atkinson's later career, i.e. the last 25 years, I would say he's played Mr. Bean and he's played variations of that vicar. Yeah, basically. And, that's it, uh, <laughs> and that, that's okay. You know, he's just been, a, he's done these little jobbing kind of Hollywood jobs, mm. uh, playing little comedy roles. And I think that's fine. That's kind of what he's suited to. And then he's managed to make himself a couple of lead roles in Bean and Johnny English. Yeah. Fair enough, you know, like, and because he created the Bean character, I assume he's like a proper producer on that. Like, he must just be making 
you know, hand over fist or over that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh god, yeah. Oh, I'm far be it from me to criticize the man. I'm sure he's he's made a great success of his life and his career. I'm not, you know, just because it's not for me doesn't mean it's not valid. <laughs> well, I think what I mean is he's must be perfectly able to pick and choose what he wants to do. I don't think he's mm-hmm. having to work to pay the mortgage, but. Yeah, he, he he's done a bit of stage work as well, you know, here and there. Most notably, he did, he played Fagan in a revival of Oliver. Okay. I think I find Rowan Atkinson's performance style very interesting because, as you say, very physical, but also specifically with Blackadder and The Thin Blue Line, very verbose, really wordy, mm. yes. and can handle that so well. And and it's sort, of, it's sort of famous that he had a stutter when he was younger and... Mm struggles with certain sounds and that's why he has this kind of overpronounced way of saying things okay like um you know bloater uh, like anything with a b sound he kind of overdoes and it's it's part it, it sort of derives from the way that he has to concentrate on things he's saying right, so that's interesting it does lend his vocal stylings a, a certain style which works really nicely and with ben elton's writing i guess it's just a, ni- a lovely sync of the two, and and they obviously worked mm. really well together. But 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 let's let's just drill into that. So we t- said earlier that with the Blackadder series, after the first one, Ben Elton was br- brought in to sort of punch it up. Yes. What's interesting to me here is that the difference between the later series of Blackadder and A Thin Blue Line is that it's just Ben Elton. So mm. in Blackadder, Ben Elton was writing with Richard Curtis. So as I said, there's this received wisdom that Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson needed Ben Elton to come and rescue Blackadder. <laughs> but actually, that demonstrates, well, I think, the difference between Blackadder and Thin Blue Line demonstrates what Curtis was bringing to the party as well, which is perhaps just, some, I don't know, just some sort of restraining influence on, on Ben Elton, perhaps. Well, certainly Richard Curtis has obviously gone on to have a fine career in his own right as well. He's so. done right for himself. Yeah. The way that Curtis and Elton wrote together were that they would take an episode and write it mm. separately and then send them over to the other person and they would have a crack at it and take a few bits out, add a few jokes yeah. in. And so it was much more of a refining process of that. Right. Uh, rather than writing together like a Galton and Simpson, for example. But there's a there's an editing process and a drafting process there, which yes, you know, again, I don't want to get too deep into Ben Elton here, but you know, perhaps that's not his style. Perhaps he's just it all gets put out onto the page, and there we are. I don't know. <laughs> but the, you know, this was several years later. He's a lot more experience mm. in terms of writing, and you think, if anything, he should have be getting more refined with all that sort of stuff. But having said that, who knows? Uh, we'll talk a bit, bit later about but, but again, his later I, work. You know, to, be, to be honest, <laughs> I feel as I'm saying these things, I feel like I'm perhaps being a little unfair because all I'm saying is that this is not to my taste. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily badly written. It's no. just my, it's not my preference. No, it's not badly written. In fact, in fact I will say it's very well written. I think yeah. the fact that it is so well written lifts it above what it, what it could be. And like I say, we'll talk about Ben Elton's later mm. sitcoms later. Yeah. We've talked about Rowan Atkinson. Why don't we talk about his character? And then mm-hmm. we can get into the episode that we're going to specifically look at. So Inspector Raymond Fowler, as his sergeant slash girlfriend says to him at one point, you were born middle-aged Raymond. Yeah. And that's, that sums up the character nicely. So a little bit like Blackadder, he's a character out of time. He's a sort of middle-aged 1950s style Dixon of Dot Green Copper, mm. who is in this 90s, I want to say precinct, but that's American, isn't it? <laughs> 90s police station, uh, having to deal with the world in the 1990s. And thus hilarity ensues. And it is, it is very placed in its time in terms of being in the 90s. In, yeah. in some of the topics that we'll deal with later. There's, yeah. it, it, I, I quite like that. You know, Ben Elton is just doing a little bit of topical comedy. But yeah, Inspector Fowler, middle-aged all his life. In fact, Rowan Atkinson, when he did this, was 40 years old. But yeah, seems 15 years older. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Look, looks yeah. older. Like Rowan Atkinson always seems to look older than he is. <laughs> Although Rowan Atkinson, for, for what it's worth, is currently married to someone who's like 20 years younger than him. <laughs> so, right, okay. so uh, you know, maybe he's young at heart. Uh, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so Fowler... As we say, he's the inspector of this police station. So he's in charge. He's the authority figure. And and uh, a crucial element of the character, that he, he is in a relationship with one mm-hmm. of the other police, uh, the sergeant, the desk sergeant, Dawkins. And we get to see some of their home life as well, which we don't yeah. really get with all the other characters. We sort of focus around Fowler. Okay. So, well, well, the episode we decided to focus on was season two, episode two, called Ism, Ism, Ism. Yes. Which, we'll, we'll get into the details, but I think the name suggests 
something which is interesting about Thin Blue Line, which is it's got this this Dixon of Doc Green feel, this idea of jolly japes at the police station, but it does occasionally tackle, you know, quite hard-hitting issues. Maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't tackle them in all that hard-hitting a way, but but yeah. it does it does delve into them. You know, it, it it's not superficial. Yeah, I agree with that, and it's a decent balance. Like, it is a sitcom, it's a light-hearted show, you don't want to be mm-hmm. trying to get into too deep, you know, this isn't a David Renwick show. In that sense, I think it works, but I know what you mean, it, it just feels a little bit like you're kind of half-heartedly doing things. Yeah, well, we deal with uh, we deal with homophobia in this episode. Mm-hmm. There is another episode where we deal quite quite physically with racism, where one of the police constables punches a handcuffed child <laughs> child yeah he's a 15 year old suspect and yes he's a skinhead and he's a nazi and he's just said something absolutely horrific <laughs> to uh to to the uh, asian female officer but mm. yeah it's police brutality and and we kind of you know he sort of gets away with it in the end which is an interesting take yeah that is an interest to work on that very specific example it is interesting like in any job if you punched someone you'd get fired like it's not the fact that mm-hmm. you're in a police should be worse if anything you know yes. because you're in a position of power and authority and it just about gets away with it in the show because the person who does it is uh, constable goody who is not an aggressive person it is you see the kind of where it's come from and and the way that we justify it or the way that fowler gets away with it is by also brushing under the carpet that this child is being abused by his mother, and therefore it's yes. okay. Two wrongs make a right. <laughs> In the context of a sitcom, all of that works. You know, it works. You've yeah. got this uh, little explosion of temper, and then we have a humorous way of getting around it, and everything is resolved. And from a dramatic point of view, it's all fine. But this is this this is this is about the police. You know, this is yeah. a police officer who just punched a handcuffed child, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that is a problem with the thin blue line. And perhaps I'm being unfair here, but I think it's particularly a problem because Ben Elton's written it. You know, he's supposed to be this great lefty. And he, here he is essentially saying, well, his brutality's fine. Look, it's funny. Well, the, the, the way that Fowler deals with this sort of incident, and it happens a few times throughout the show, is, you know, he is absolutely straight down the line. The law is the law. We must mm. uphold the law. The police have to be uh, cleaner than everyone else. We have to be an example. And then he will bend that those rules when he feels like it's justified. And because of the nature of his character, we are kind of on board with like, yeah, he's doing the right thing. Well, that's that's why, that's why they framed the Birmingham Six, because they were wrong anyway, weren't they? Exactly. But they even <laughs> deal with that in this show in which uh, a, a drug dealer is framed by the CID guys. Yeah. And Fowler ultimately finds a way to stop that from happening, but without getting anyone into trouble. Mm. Although he does try, he wants to arrest Grimm. Uh, but fails to do so. And we, we very specifically see how um, broken up Grimm is about it. He feels terrible guilt about what he's done. And so ultimately we kind of fall on the side of like, okay, you know what? He's fundamentally a good copper as well, uh, even though he's been tempted to do yeah. this wrong thing. And so I think the message of the show is very much, you know, we're standing up for the law and we're doing the right thing. And we have to understand that in this a world that is not clear cut black and white, Sometimes you just have to like, okay, well, let's just nudge this mm. this rule over here. Let's bend this rule a little bit. And you just have to trust the police inspector that he'll bend the right rules for the right reasons. And thank you very much, Ben Elton. That's a great message. <laughs> well, exactly. But I think, I think you know, you can say all you like, the purity of, well, these are the rules, these are the rules. But real life isn't like that. And I, I think if what Elton is trying to create here is some sense of of reality and a, and he, he does seem like he is genuinely trying to have a little bit of a conversation mm. about like where do these rules stand where do these lines fall yeah 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 i think if anything i want to give a bit of credit to ben elton there that he's not trying to create these stark lines and, and he is happy to kind of go well, you know sometimes things drop on the wrong I think side perhaps, of the law as i say I'm, I'm examining my own opinion here and i think perhaps that doesn't play as well today as it would have in 1995 that's that's my point maybe i'm reading too much into this alan you know i do have a tendency to do that <laughs> but, but but you make a good point about if you are going to write a sitcom about the police you could just not address these issues at all and at least he's having a go and i think i think mm. you're right i think that's we should give him credit for that even if i don't necessarily agree with the the execution well, like you say, this is, we're talking 25 years hindsight here. So 
1995, things are different. And indeed, in this episode, which is why I picked this episode, really, they're dealing with that very directly. It's very much kind of going... I mean, they mentioned Paul Condon's report, uh, which was you yeah, know in the news at the time. Topical, as, yeah. Was yeah. it Stephen Lawrence's case that had kind of kicked off... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, institutionalized racism in the police yeah. and investigation into all that. And so this really directly addresses it. I mean, it literally uses his name. But 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 also makes the joke that his name sounds like condom, which... Which it does. It does. <laughs> and you might think that's route one, but just as Constable Goody is cracking up laughing at that, well, so was I for the whole of... <laughs> for about two years. His name sounds like condom. I mean, that is genuinely funny. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And why would Ben Elton waste that opportunity? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's let's come to that in a second. Let's start at the beginning of the episode, which yes. is uh, an Inspector Fowler monologue. Now, let's talk about this. So we got two series of the show. The first series had a, a packaged theme tune and and like a they're having a group photograph taken, and that's that's the that's the title sequence. Yes. But then the second series we, that's dropped, and we just go straight to Inspector Fowler at his desk talking to us, a, a Rowan yeah. Atkinson monologue. And that's the wrong way around, isn't it? Like this feels this this monologue they have at the beginning feels like something you would on paper as a writer you go, oh yeah, that's a nice way of doing it. Yeah, Dixon a Doc Green reference. It's it's a, a nice way to set mm. up the story. You establish your character, and then you kind of actually do it and go, do you know what? That just kind of doesn't work. You're breaking the fourth wall, which we don't do at any other part of the show. It doesn't really work. Let's drop that. But no, it's the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, and my best guess is that you know they had a change of cast. And so they would have had to refilm the opening theme and they thought, oh, let's not bother. <laughs> it's too much work, yes. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. The, the opening of the show, uh, once we get past the monologue, and I think this is quite true of most of the episodes, is that you could jump in anywhere. You, hmm. The way that we see these characters establishes who they are straight away. This is the strength of El- Ben Elton's writing, I think, that although you can always tell when it's Ben Elton's writing, <laughs> like there is a very specific style, he is able to give his characters a personal voice. So straight away we see, you know, Constable Habib just walks up to the desk and Goody walks past and is kind of ogling her and walks into yeah. the door. Bit of slapstick comedy. He's a ridiculous character. He fancies her. Job done. And then Fowler comes in and him and uh, Fowler and, and Sergeant Dawkins speak. We understand immediately, oh, they're in a personal relationship as well as a professional yeah. one. If you've never watched any other episode of this and just went straight into this, this would all you make perfect it. sense straight away. Yes. Alan, sorry, Alan, are you saying that that is typical Ben Elton when you said this is typical of Ben Elton? Is that what you mean? That idea of everything's nicely set up and reset and established so that you can just dip in and out? Yes, I think that, frankly, I think that's good writing uh, in yeah. terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. old-fashioned sitcom writing. Not so much these days. It's a bit more, uh, you have a bit more continuous plot these days mm-hmm. and you kind of go along. That's uh, People seem to accept that. But in this old style of stuff, you get one episode a week, you might have been out the week before, so you missed a bit. Mm-hmm. You want people to be able to drop in. It is an episodic thing. You want people to be able to drop in and understand what's going on straight away. Pre-box set. Exactly, yes. Mm. I like that. I think that's really good, efficient writing, being able to do that in a way that feels natural and smooth. And to someone who has watched every episode, it doesn't feel repetitive or clunky. Mm-hmm. That's good writing. That's good professional writing. Uh, we, we, we we start with uh, a little thing here where Sergeant Dawkins has kind of accidentally seen something on CCTV or something that mm-hmm. is going on in a person's private house, sort of through yeah. a window. Now, I don't know if 1995 CCTV was really that good, frankly, but <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting way they just, again, this is something they address without quite getting into. She's worried about something she's seen, but... She shouldn't really be seeing that. We're intruding yes, into people's personal were, lives. They were watching not... the shop underneath the house, not the house above the shop. Yes, that's not the police's business. So do you act on that or not? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in this episode, it kind of we kind of get lost. We forget about all this, and then we just jump back to it at the end. And it is a way to tie in with something else that's going on. But yeah. it feels very much like something that's been dropped in to give us a tie-in rather than a natural yes. writing. <laughs> Yeah. So that's a little bit clunky, but it's a nice, in, it's an interesting little look at how they were thinking about police surveillance and that sort of thing. That's something that feels much more relevant today. We talked a little bit about the relationship between Sergeant Dawkins and Inspector Fowler. Mm. Who, who, who plays Sergeant Dawkins? Tell me about her. Uh, Serena Evans, mm-hmm. who, uh, yeah, I don't know from anything else, <laughs> really. Uh, well, she's, uh, I, I, I looked her up and 
I, like you, I don't really know her very well, but she was in the Bad News episode of, of the comic strip, which is the mm. greatest ever rock <laughs> mockumentary. Better, better than Spinal Tap, and I will fight anyone for that. <laughs> the comic strip presents stuff. She's in a few of those. That was kind of her mm. earlier credits. She did something with Hale and Pace in the 80s. Mm. Uh, she was a regular in The Piglet Files, which is a Nicholas Lindhurst sitcom, but I'm not familiar with, actually. I've never seen it. Yeah. She was actually in Maybe Baby, which was Ben Elton's film production mm-hmm. of a novel he'd written. And that's it in terms of sitcom comedy connections. She's you know, a solid actor, but yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't really know her from anything else. But the character, it's the character herself, Sergeant Dawkins, I, I can't... <laughs> the notes I've made on my piece of paper here is she's Inspector Fowler's girlfriend. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and it's not clear to me what what she's getting out of this relationship. She just seems constantly frustrated by him. Yes, I in, in some of the earlier episodes in, in series one, what we get more from this as a character, we see a bit more both sides of that, whereas later on it just becomes Inspector Fowler is a middle-aged, weird old man. Why is she with him? But in, the, in those earlier episodes, it goes with, and, and again, this is a really classic old-school sitcom thing. Mm. The wife who is A, bad at cooking, and therefore failing in a fundamental function as a wife. <laughs> I know she's not the wife. Um, and also really wants sex more than the man. That is classic sitcom right yeah, there. That is sitcom comedy. tropes we've got there, yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, Ben Elton loves a classic sitcom. I think he's doing mm-hmm. that deliberately. And the cooking thing kind of gets lost. There's a couple of mentions to it, and then it's like, uh, there's not really any fuel there. It's all been done. Yeah. Plus the whole point of this is that he's slightly undercutting that. This is a modern 20th century, 90s relationship. And mid-90s, they're not even married and they're living together. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a kid from a previous marriage. But the, the, those other elements are still there. She's sexually frustrated because he's not very sexy um, mm-hmm. and he's not very sexually active. But also, she's just generally frustrated because he's not very exciting. And then you get the odd moment where she's just happy that he's there. And there's a, there's a whole episode in series two where they they break up. Okay. And so we have the whole episode where they kind of go off on their own and realize that they can't cope on their own and so mm-hmm. get back together. Uh, but, you know, I think the idea is that ultimately they're happy together in their sort of quiet little way. Mm-hmm. Uh, she could just do with a little bit more excitement, I suppose. And he seems very happy with her. And like I say, the, the whole element of her not perhaps not being a great partner either, for whatever reason, kind of gets lost. And we just sort of focus on on him being a bit of a loser. But, you know, like we say, ultimately he's a good man and a, and a sturdy man and perhaps you want a bit of stability when you're in your mid-30s and you're <laughs> settling down. Yeah, other than that, we don't actually get much relationship stuff with them in this episode. Um, but what we do get is her jealousy, which is another big element of this character, mm. when we have the Lady Mayoress yes. turns up. And uh, she is introduced in the first episode of the second series and comes back a couple of times. But her and Inspector Fowler went to school together, so they know each other. He had a crush on her. Nothing ever came of it, but, you know, ultimately he still sort of fancies her. He's kind of like the yeah. the girl, who the dream girl, who the popular girl who he could never have got. And, and she still is way out of the And she's this, she's this figure of authority, which, you know, he, he's the figure of authority. So she's the only person who sort of outranks him. Yes, and it's an unusual uh, relationship in that obviously he respects her in that authority sense in in the way he you would expect him to, but also he's very deferential to her and he clearly fancies her and we definitely get a sense that he quite likes being dominated by a woman in some strange way that he probably well, doesn't want to examine. Th- th- too this is the thing himself. because it's not just that she's a woman of authority; she's awful. Like she's yeah, abusive. She's a- you know, she's she tells him to shut up, and you know, it, th- she's a caricature of a woman in authority. <laughs> Sources tell me that this Euro swine is an insufferably soppy, bleeding heart liberal. <laughs> These continentals. I said shut up, Raymond! <laughs> I have a good mind to discipline you. It definitely is. And, and she is a caricature in a way that, even for this show, is m- more so than a the other characters. Much. With perhaps Goody is an, ex- is, uh, an mm. exception to that in terms of over the top caricatures. But yeah, she is over the top even by this show's standards. And it it doesn't particularly work for me. I think it seems a bit silly. I don't think the performance is anything special either. No. It's very straight down the line. But it gives us a chance to see a different side to Fowler. And we get some sort of very cheap laughs out of the Sergeant Dawkins' jealousy. 
and yeah. and she's quite reactionary in, in a lot of ways. Like she will overhear half a sentence and sort of put the story together in her own head. We yeah. do that a lot. One of the weaker elements of the show, personally, I think, but uh, you know, that's what we get. So another really main ingredient of the show is accidental euphemisms or, or, or mm-hmm. double entendres that are not intentional. Yes. Absolute stock in trade from Inspector Fowler and largely from Grimm as well. Tell me what those long truncheons they have on NYPD Blue. Don't be absurd, Constable. Those telegraph poles that American officers carry are just so much macho posturing. The traditional truncheon is perfectly adequate. Personally, I've always felt more than satisfied with 14 inches hanging down inside my trousers. What I do like about that is that it is kind of acknowledged in world. Like, Habib... Habib's always laughing at them under a under a breath, isn't she? Yeah, Habib laughing, and Habib, who is the straight man of the show, mm-hmm. Habib is yes. the normal one. Uh, so I think having her react in that way is nice, and I think the fact that Fowler is never aware of what he said uh, mm-hmm. is it works. That's funny. It is a bit repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what my problem with that is? Mina Anwar, who plays Habib, mm. she's being asked to laugh and stifle a laugh at something that's not terribly funny. And I don't know how many takes they have, but I, I just I just saw a lot of fake laughing from, from that character. And and I, I'm not really having a go at the actor there because it's a really difficult thing to do is to, just to, to, to laugh at something that's not very funny for the eighth time. <laughs> well, shall we, shall we speak of Mina Anwar then? Um, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, since we've brought you? her up. So, yeah, the, the character we've talked a little bit about, she's the straight, straight character wpc maggie habib wpc incidentally i looked it up that was still a thing that they got rid of that in 1999 uh, that's interesting which but, but it, fe- it felt very old-fashioned wpc habib yeah which is a is it literally just woman police constable that's exactly that? what it is yeah i think they were going to go with lady cop but they said <laughs> instead but yeah the, just the idea and this is this helps put it in a time, you know, the idea that, you know, we have police constables and we have woman police constables and the mm. two are different. They are separate yes. as opposed to now where you're a police constable. It doesn't matter if yeah. you're a Martian with three heads, you're still a police constable. But I think it's a good character. She's got a bit of a smart mouth. She's knowing. Mm-hmm. She's very knowing. She's the adult in the room, really. Yes. She knows when to push uh, authority, when to push Fowler and when not to. She kind of understands the workplace ethics of that, but also is prepared to make her voice heard. Uh, she's quite young. Like she was, Mina Anwar was about 25 at the time. And, and the idea yeah. is that we have these two young police officers. Fowler has to deal with these young people who have different ideas to him. And, 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 and certainly, in, as we see in this episode, Habib is the voice of the liberal youth <laughs> and the voice of change yes. in, in largely a positive way. You know, it is all very expressed as, I guess that's what Ben Elton would have been 15 years earlier, you know? <laughs> like, yes. I'd like to talk about Sir Paul Condon's report about policing and race, sir. Oh, well, that sounds like a good idea. Which part of the report would you like to discuss? The disgusting fascist racist bit, sir. Hmm. Strangely, that part of the report seems to have been omitted from my copy. Of <laughs> but yeah, so just to speak of Mina Anwar, so this was... One of her first credit might even be her absolute first TV credit. Yeah, like I say, fairly young and not someone who has been exactly overburdened with work after this. <laughs> uh, after this came about, she she was in Maybe Baby as well. So obviously Ben Elton liked her. The only thing the only thing she I've ever seen her in since is Happy Valley. She was in that that Sarah Lancashire drama. Oh which, yeah, yeah. Uh, she had a you know supporting role in that. Yeah, well, she certainly worked. Like, don't get me wrong, but certainly in in later years, there's been there's been more credits there and. Mm-hmm. The little bits I've seen her in, yeah, I haven't seen anything that's really won me over that she's a great actor, but she's getting the job done. Doctors and Nurses, a sitcom in 2004, set in an NHS hospital with Adrian Edmondson as the lead, as a, as a surgeon. Oh, that does ring a bell. Yes, I've, yeah. I've forgotten what it was called. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I know I know of it. So she's a regular in that as like the head nurse, nice character there. Then uh, she was also, talk about this a little bit later, because uh, she was in something called The Right Way, which was a Ben Elton written sitcom with mm-hmm. David Haig as the lead. Ah, okay. That's and she is a supporting character in that. So we'll talk about that when we get to David Haig. Uh, okay. But that was in 2013. But both those shows had one series and then failed. She popped up in Upstart Crow as a little appearance, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later. 
but she's also done theatre work. She she was in Everyone's Talking About Jamie, which has a big been a big West End hit last year uh, before everything closed down. And she originated that role um, before it went right. to West End. So you know that's pretty impressive. You know that's yeah, all yeah, that's all good stuff. So. Uh, but yeah, so as Habib here, yes, the voice of liberal youth, and we see her here fighting her corner ab- about racism in the force and and, yeah. and dealing with that. And obviously, that's what this episode's all about: isms. The, the way they deal with racism is to have Rowan Atkinson pretend to be a Martian uh, <laughs> and try and convince everyone that they should treat him normally, even though he looks weird. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> My name is Constable Zog. Controlling <laughs> the beat with you today. <laughs> I hope we shall be friends. But we've talked before in in previous episodes about how you can see the writers. Uh, I think I'm struck by when we talked about Time Gentleman, Please, you could see the Al Murray material and then you could see the Richard Herring writing. And yep. this bit where Rowan Atkinson pretends to be an alien to, you know, to, to illustrate racism. I mean, that's Rowan Atkinson material. Yeah. I can see him on stage doing that. So I, I, yeah. I feel like Ben Elton was writing this, uh, writing the screenplay for this and then just put insert Rowan material here. Yes. <laughs> and Rowan let him do some that. funny voices, funny noises and little hand yeah. movements. <laughs> i tell you something though. I, I, when he started doing this, I actually wrote my notes here. I can see in front of me. I've put, he's being an alien. I'm out. I, it really turned me <laughs> off. I really didn't like it. But, but they pulled me back in with, um, he said, right, I've got three heads. I've got six arms. And uh, what, what are you going to say to me? And, and Constable Goody says, these three heads... Do you have a helmet on each one? <laughs> yes, yes, if you like. Just greet me, boy, greet me. Hello, hello, hello. Now that is a great <laughs> joke. That is a brilliant <laughs> joke. They pulled me back in. It is a great joke. And and very nicely dealt with by James Dreyfus, who plays Goody. He, he does this kind of head movement. So just to really show you that he's talking yes. to three heads, it's not just... Yes. Yeah, I think it's a really nicely dealt with. It's, it's nicely structured as a bit of writing. One thing I like about that character is that he he, he really laughs at himself when he does a joke. Yeah. <laughs> he really finds himself hilarious inside yeah. the sitcom. I think that's great. <laughs> and, and, and if anything, that particular moment is out of character for him because it is so funny. Usually his jokes are crap. <laughs> well, well, yeah, usually his jokes are crap and usually he's not entirely sure that he's making a joke. It's, it's yes. more of a double entendre. Whereas this one is a... I mean, that's a legitimate joke. That is a great line. The point of this little sketch is to is to show, you know, just because someone looks different to you, you should treat them exactly the same and, and they have different culture that doesn't matter. And even within the scene, you know, we have Habib saying, well, you know, that's not really what it is. We don't have to be blind to it. We can we can accept each other's culture and embrace our differences and enjoy our differences. And I like that. I like it's they're the yeah. not trying to make a cut and dry. Inspector Fowler is kind of just slightly caught off guard and like, oh, actually, yeah, I don't know if that is. Gladstone, who is obviously a, a Trinidadian, a black man who has then moved to Britain. You know, he says, I don't think I could get, I don't think I could just let it go if there was a green alien walking around. Does that make me a racist? And Fowler says like, oh, oh I don't know. Yeah, so, yeah. this... This black man be racist? I don't know. Is that right? There's a confusion to it, and that's that's 1995. That, that, that's it's 2021 as well. I mean, you yeah, know, the exactly. answer to most of these questions is complicated, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I think if anything, it's a bit ahead of his time, and and, and that's yeah, what Ben Elton yeah. is doing. He's yeah, I awesome. like that he he is just raising these questions, and he's very gently and comedically exploring them. He's not trying to give too many answers. He's not trying to make it too easy and simple. It's just saying like, yeah, well, this is yeah, kind it's of complicated, complicated, isn't it? And the beautiful thing about it is that it's not because Fowler is trying to not get in trouble. He's trying to not say the right, the wrong thing. He just wants to say the right thing. He wants yes. to be really nice and fair to everyone. And that's ultimately, he's such a like Coming from a good place. And that's why his haplessness is not, you know, there's no malice in it at all. Yes, exactly. We talked about Constable Goody there. So having talked about Habib... Why don't we talk mm-hmm. about uh, James Dreyfus and yeah. well, let's talk about the character first because it's a huge character, really big, over the top camp character. Yes, it certainly is. And James Dreyfus is obviously it's something of a stock in trade for him. Uh, but this was his his opening character. Mm. It certainly wasn't his first thing, but it's a breakthrough role. Yeah, in terms of 
you know, a major role on a TV show. And I think it somewhat typecast him as a ridiculous camp character. So the character himself, super camp, like, <laughs> not, mm. like a re- again, a, a, a sort of very classic sitcom trope of camp. And again, I I can only assume that's a deliberate choice by Ben Elton because he's, he's playing into these old-fashioned style of sitcoms. But I think James Dreyfus might represent the end of that because... Mm. He's he's doing it here, and and a crucial element of Goody's character is that he's straight, regardless yes. of how camp he is. And you would, if you met him, you would assume he was gay because he's just very effeminate, and that's a, a connection we make culturally. And that's in world as well. Everyone in, in this episode, there's this whole um, misunderstanding about him coming out, and he's talking mm. about going to the pub. But actually, they think he's coming. Out, he wants to come out as gay because. Look at him. <laughs> and, you know, yes. so, so it's not just that we are being led to believe that. Everyone in the universe of the sitcom thinks he's gay as well. Yes, despite the fact that he obviously really fancies Habib mm-hmm. and uh, makes several um, passes at her in all sorts of different ways. And in ways that are entirely inappropriate for a workplace relationship. Yes. Especially when it's, she's made it so clear that she's not interested. And yes. again, that is something that perhaps wouldn't play as well now. But also the fact that he is that simpering uh, kind of quite weak character makes yeah. it so unthreatening yes. that it gets away with it it's certainly in a comedy environment and the fact that habib is such a strong character and, and kind of knows how to deal with it at every turn mm-hmm. to get back to my point about kind of james dreyfus there he's playing this classic sitcom camp character who is actually straight that is mm-hmm. Camp. That's what camp was. He didn't actually acknowledge that they were gay. And a, a, a great example of this is Melvin Hayes in It Ain't a Half Hot Mum. Gloria. And Melvin Hayes turns up in this episode. It, it, yeah, a, I mean, it's, it's not, it can't be a coincidence, can it? <laughs> no, as an example of a camp man, basically, is what they're yeah. thinking. In It Ain't a Half Hot Mum, Melvin Hayes is a female impersonator in an entertainment troupe and is extremely camp and effeminate. And then... Quite late on in the series, in, in several series in, we find out he's met a nurse and he wants to marry her. And I, when I, I remember watching that, which, you know, that would have been in 2010 or something when I watched it. I was really disappointed. I understood that in a show made in the 70s, 80s and set in the 40s, they're not going to acknowledge that he's gay. Yeah. But to actually undercut it and say, he, oh no, he's straight. I, it sort of really disappointed me and it was necessary. But having said that, Melvin Hayes is straight. He's been married to three different women in his life. So <laughs> yeah. maybe you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yes. So, but so to get back to James Dreyfus, then there is a history of camp and sitcom. And a couple of years after this, he did Gimme, 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 of course. Mm. In that he plays a ridiculously camp character who is gay. But that I think Gimme, Gimme, Gimme in that time and place in the late 90s was basically reclaiming camp for gays yeah. <laughs> you know it's and that's obviously a little bit of a simple analysis of that but it was a point where hey the gay culture is at a point where it can start to mock itself mm-hmm. it, it, it can start to use its own stereotypes for for humor and and is comfortable enough in its position in society yeah. to look at itself in that way instead of simply being well hey guys we're not just stereotypes look this is normal we're normal <laughs> That's interesting. So uh, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying what you're saying, but are you saying that 1995, The Thin Blue Line, you had to say, no, but he is straight. I know we're doing this comedy camp character, but look, he's straight. He fancies Habib. Whereas in whatever, 1998-9, when Gimme Gimme, it was, it, that's, that's the time where it changed over to, look, this guy's gay. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a very simplistic view of it, but I think it is this period, this time period where that is happening. And obviously it's that show is written by a gay person and, and has a gay person playing the role. It's kind of, yes. it has to come from a place, a place of knowledge and a place of truth. Mm-hmm. But it is, hey, we can, we can laugh at ourselves. And you can't do that if you're working so hard on being taken seriously. And obviously, yeah, it's a bit of a simplistic view of what's happening at the time. But I think because we have James Dreyfus in these two roles, it's a, it's a nice, neat little kind yeah. of, hey, look at the, the distance here. For what it's worth, I think Constable Goody could be gay and you'd lose that kind of one element of that character. But if you made, if you are Ben Elton and you write a show in 1995 in which you have a gay character and he's ridiculously camp and a total gay mm. stereotype... Yeah. Then the questions that are going to be asked of you in 1995 are like, what do you think you're doing? Writing a stupid gay character that what you don't know anything yeah. about gays. What do you yeah. think? This is a ridiculous stereotype. Make him straight and you can just have fun with it. What was he asked those questions anyway? Yeah, maybe. You to write this camp character. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But that's it. He's writing a character in a, in a tradition of sitcom camp. 
as opposed to, I'm trying to write a modern-day gay character. What would that be like? So we talked about James Dreyfus, who, uh, uh, that's a really lovely uh, juxtaposition between this character and his character in Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. But Gimme, Gimme, Gimme was also 20 years ago. So what did he do? What's he done since then? <laughs> Again, he's been a bit of a jobbing actor. But he, you know, he did a lot of work on stage as well. He actually won an Olivier Award in 1998 you know no, nothing to be sniffed at there and yeah. then it was gimme 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 that made him a bit of a household name that was from 99 to 2001 uh, and certainly he was a tv star at that point and in fact he went over to america and tried to uh, break america and played a character in a very short-lived sitcom called bet uh, which was a vehicle for bet midler I-, I sent you a clip of this did you did you get yeah. a chance to watch it i did i watched this clip yeah Well, it was very Bette Midler heavy. It felt like Bette Midler had decided to do a sitcom and employed a writer and a director and a studio and said, Mm -hmm. write this around me. And it was all very much focused on her and everyone else just felt ancillary. Well, that is something we see a lot in American shows, particularly the ones that have just, the the title is the name of the star. Mm. Uh, It's very much everyone in the cast is focused on making them look good. And they often don't work very well. I think it's an interesting to compare that to, for example, Rowan Atkinson, who, you know, shies away from that limelight. But as we saw in Not the Nine O'Clock News, as we see in Blackadder, as we see in The Thin Blue Line, he's the main star, he's the main focus, that character. But this is an ensemble piece, and and we are not here to serve Rowan Atkinson. We are not here to set him up for the best lines. And that's the difference, I think, in a style of comedy. That's that's true. And certainly, Bette Midler doesn't seem to be um, uh, (laughs) working on that basis. But yeah, obviously I didn't watch a lot of Bet. I watched like one episode just to see James Dreyfus in it. And he's playing a kind of similar to what you'd see him as, not really ridiculously camp, but a a slightly effeminate uh, pianist uh, who works with Bette Midler. (laughs) So we're catering the party and I'm passing around crab cakes and Tim Curry takes one, looks at me and says, what? No tartar sauce. Uh, yeah, not a very good show. He What he's doing is fine, but the show failed and he came back over to Britain, I guess. He was in, he was in the last series of My Hero, wasn't he? Took over Ardlow Hanlon's character. Yeah, so that was two. Which again, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't... I, I, I remember watching My Hero and enjoying it, but I must have stopped watching it at some point because I do not remember James Dreyfus being in it. Yeah, My Hero was never good. It, it was... You could I maybe do that. My Hero once at, at one point because I think that's quite an interesting sitcom. It didn't do very well that, you know, it was, they did one series and they let that go. And then, you know, James Dreyfus, he's done um, theatre work. He he was in a show called Mount Pleasant for many years, which is a Sky One comedy drama. Like he was a sort of semi-regular in that. Okay. It was, um, he, he, he hasn't quite got that boyish energy that he used to have, which is obviously mm. like so evident here. Yeah. Uh, but you, you can't do that when you're in your, in your uh, late 40s, can you? <laughs> And that's all we have for you this week. What, you want more? Well, okay. Come back next time when we will be discussing the other actors, also going through the rest of the plot of this particular episode, and we'll be doing a deep dive into the life and work of Ben Elton. So come back next time for that. In the meantime, do please check out our other episodes or go to our YouTube page, British Sitcom History, where you can find extra content over and above the podcast itself. Thank you for listening and be seeing you.